The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So last week we looked at Isaiah 50 verses 10 through 11, and we saw a time that God allows darkness in our lives, and we read that it's the person that fears God, he obeys God, and yet they're walking in darkness. And sometimes we have what we call God's ordained darkness in your life. And one of the dangers when we have this darkness is to light our own fire, right? Trying to help God out. Now, remember, if this darkness comes to you and you're fearing God and you're obeying God, that means darkness has been ordained by God. And it's better for you to be leaning in God, on God in the darkness than trying to light your own fire like we talked about last Sunday. So last Sunday was more of dark days in your personal life. Well, what about the dark days we're living through as a nation. We're living in a day which everything is not nailed down, it's coming loose, and these are fearful days, aren't they? And let me say this, some of you is disappointed in the, so before I get there, I tell the deacons in the preaching team, do not talk about politics in the pulpit. And we don't. But I know there's a lot of you here that are disappointed by the way the election turned out, right? You're so disappointed, and you're like, what are we going to do? God, what are you doing? And you know, and everyone has a reason and justification for voting for this way or that way, but I'm going to come to a conclusion that there's three sides to every story, not two. There's your side, there's my side, and there's God's side. And your side not be right, my side might not be right, but assure that God's side will always, always be right. So what do we do in these uncertain times? And a question is being asked today, which is a question has been asked all through the years, and all this trouble in the world, where is God? All the crime that's happening, all the disease, all the hatred and murder, this COVID virus, right? God, how can there be a loving God and he's allowing all this mess to happen? And as, as Christians, we don't understand fully or we don't want to study it, a doctrine that gives us peace, and that is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. You know, with our lips we say, oh, God, you're in control, right? God, you're in control. Let your will be done. But with our speech, with our actions, we do the complete opposite. We try to light our own fire in the dark. And better yet, we tell God what he needs to do, right? You think, let me ask you this, you think the Holy Trinity up there in heaven is having an emergency meeting? How did, how did Biden become president? Now God's looking at Jesus, Jesus is looking at the Holy Spirit like, oh, they cheated. Folks, there's no panic in heaven. There's no emergency sessions. One of the greatest, if, if not the greatest Bible in the doctrine is sovereignty of God. It's the doctrine that becomes widely, it's misunderstood, misinterpreted, but nonetheless, it's the most comforting attribute of our great God. And when we speak of sovereignty, we're simply affirming the fact that God is in utter, complete control of all affairs of men. And has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? Nothing occurs to God. Nothing, no, he's not surprised, he's not shocked by anything that takes place in our lives. 
And everything that happens must be filtered through God's hands, through his fingertips. And I came across what I think is one of the greatest statements concerning sovereignty of God is by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, there's no attribute more comforting to his children than the God of sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, and sovereignty overrules them, and sovereignty will sanctify them all. There's nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly content to than doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. And folks, today I want to look with you in the book of Habakkuk. It's in the Bible. It's in there, trust me. Prophet Habakkuk is called a minor prophet, but I'll guarantee you that the message is not minor. This book was written in a time of national crisis, when everything that wasn't nailed down was coming loose and the devil was pulling nails, and that's what the book of Habakkuk is about. Habakkuk faced the same problems. And it's only three chapters. And we're going to look at all those three chapters today, so I hope you packed your lunch. You know, chapter one is the great burden. In matter of fact, you know, verse one says, the burden of the prophet Habakkuk, the burden he saw. It talks about the perplexing problem. He just looked around and said, God, where are you? Are you how, how long are you going to let all this happen? Chapter two is, Gives Habakkuk a proper perspective. He got a long look, and God spoke to him and gave him a vision. He didn't give him an explanation. You'll see that he didn't answer his why, but he gave him a vision. And then, after all that, a perplexing problem, then he got a proper perspective, and chapter 3 ends with praise. Chapter 3 ends with praise. So Habakkuk began to praise God. He found peace. And you see, he found peace not because all those problems were removed, but he understood that God is in complete control. And peace is not subtraction of our problems from our life. It's the power he gives us to meet those problems. And that's what Habakkuk found out, and that's what I hope you find out today as well. And let me give you a little background what's happening here King Josiah has instituted a lot of reforms in the nation, in Judah. He abolished all the idols and things that they worshipped. And look at 2 Chronicles 34, first three verses. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Eight years old. Huh. And reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked into the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, so eighth year, and he was eight, so he's 16, he began to seek God of his father David and on the twelfth year began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places of wooden images and carved images and the molded images. So he's instituting, we're going to serve the true God of Israel, removed all those false religions and cults and so forth. But then as statistics prove that 
one out of one people dies. Josiah died in battle. And his sons, three sons and grandson, took over. Now, obviously, these little hipsters didn't learn anything from their father or about why he was placing such reforms in the nation. And after his death, the nation quickly reverted back to its evil ways. In 2 Chronicles 36, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. And he was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. He, didn't, he only lasted for three months and was imprisoned and deported to Egypt. Then his other brother in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36.5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So you have the father, did the reforms, did good what's in the sight of God, then passes away, son takes over, not successful, three months, other son takes over and does evil, completely opposite of what his father was doing. And Habakkuk is questioning God now, like, what are you doing? Aren't you going to do something about this? We're going backwards. We have a leader who's doing evil in your side. And to Habakkuk, God appeared to be indifferent to sin. We live in a day just like that. When anarchy, there's in the nations, folks, apostasy in the churches, there's apathy in the pews. And we'll talk about that here. We wonder why people do what they do. In Habakkuk, he was a patriot. He loved God. He loved his people. He loved this country. And it seemed like nothing that he wanted worked out. So he's faced with questions, same questions that sometimes we're faced with. And we stain heaven with our prayers, and things don't get better. They get worse, don't they? And we ask the same question, God, why don't you answer my prayer? God, won't you do something? See weak? See having emergency meeting sessions? He doesn't know what's going on? Won't you do something? And you know, the more I talk to younger people, it's not, they're, not, they're, they're losing their faith not because necessarily of science, how the world began and things like that, but they have a hard time believing how the world is ending. They say, if God is a God of love, how can all these things happen? Must be there is no God. And Habakkuk was so frustrated, and he wrote this book by divine inspiration. And if you're a little frustrated by what's happening in our land today, you're going to be encouraged by this book. And you should put some of your concerns to rest. First, there's the perplexing problem. Well, his problem was threefold. First, in Habakkuk 1 and 2, it says, The burden which prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. So, problem here is heaven's silence. It's having a problem. God, I've been praying and I've been praying. Why is heaven silent? Why don't you hear my prayer? In other words, the louder he prayed, the longer he prayed, he walked away with the same answer, which was nothing. Looks like his prayer was falling on deaf ears. He poured out his heart to God and prayed, God, 
something, you got to do something about this violence, this injustice in the land, strife. But God didn't seem to hear his prayer. And folks, the, the word here to cry out is two different words in the Hebrew language. One is a plea for help. God save us. And the other one is a shout. He's saying, God, where are you? Have you ever experienced anything so dark in your life that you shouted to God? Anybody have that moment? I shouted to God. You know, there's been a moment here actually with grace to say, God, I know you put me here, but do you remember where you put me? And I can understand how he felt. There's the silence. There's just no answer. Not only heaven's silence, but there's earth's sin. Look in verses 3 to 4. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, and their strife and contentions arise. Therefore, the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. So we have heaven's silence, we have earth's sins, and the condition uh, of Habakkuk's day was terrible, folks. Idolatry was pretty much a daily activity. Uh, people turned their backs on God, and he couldn't understand why God would seem, seem to be just sitting by and allowing things to deteriorate, right? They're just going bad and bad and bad. But the contempor- uh, the, the, there's another prophet that lived in the time of Habakkuk. And I want you to see what he says about what was happening in the land. And Jeremiah, uh, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 30, 31. And in verse 30 says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. What, what is this horrible thing that's been committed in the land? What, what, is it murder? What, what, what's happening? Verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it. But what will you do in the end? What's this terrible thing that happened? Well, prophets were not preaching the word of God. Priests were worldly and selfish. And the sad thing is that people loved it. People loved it. Doesn't it look like our world today? Do you know what happened in America? Problem is not... Democrats, Republicans, the White House. You heard me say before, the problem is the church house. It's the church house. We have a generation of preachers today who preach that, you know, quote, user-friendly evangelism and seeker-sensitive churches. You find me one church. When they did their church, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that they tried to make it seeker-friendly. Churches for the saints. And I believe in those things, but they must be done God's ways. And it seems that we just somehow just told people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Prophets prophesize falsely. Priests serve for gain. And people love it that way. There are preachers in America today who are telling young people that sex outside of marriage is good and pleasurable as long as it's safe sex. Well, I didn't know sex was meant to be dangerous. You know, Vadi Buckman, I think he said it 
best about the modern church. And again, it's not all churches, but churches in general. He said, the modern church today is producing passionate people with empty heads who love Jesus that they don't know. There are pastors standing up in churches today and telling you that homosexuality is acceptable lifestyle. It's coming from the pulpits. There are pastors today that are telling you from the pulpits that abortion is okay. It's coming from the pulpits. They prophesize falsely. They serve for greed. And you think God's looking at the Democrats or the Republicans and blaming them for what's happening? You'll see what's happening here in a second. But we don't have to go far. Everybody knows Ravi Zacharias? The great apologist passed away. All of a sudden, it turns out he was living a double lifestyle. All these sexual allegations, and guess what? They're all true. And he's out there proclaiming the word of God, or was. Max Lucado, everybody knows him. Great books and so forth. Just last week, he wrote a letter to the LG. BTQ, apologizing for his sermons that he preached on homosexuality because they offended them. What have we become? And you think God's going to let that slip by? What's happening in our country? Remember that funny question I mentioned last time, last Sunday, somebody asked me, how do we take our country back? Well, you can start by cleaning up the pulpits of America. And folks, if we're a Christian nation, and we vote biblical values. What's, what's happening? We can go a long way. And the reason we have so much hell and riots in the streets is because we don't have any in the pulpits. It becomes motivational speech. There's no truth. And we can say, yes, not our heads, those wicked pastors. No, no, no. The people love it that way. The people love it. That's what he says here. The people love it. And then he goes on, Jeremiah 8:12 says, Were they ashamed they had committed this abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall just fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishments, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Jeremiah said, You would think they'd be ashamed, but they couldn't even blush. You know, sometimes when I'm working from home, I have the TV on, and sometimes these daytime talk shows come on and so forth. And they just openly think, talk, and not even blushing about their adulteries, fornifications, all these things. They're talking about it openly on TV. It's acceptable. You want to be a hero today? Have a sex change. You'll be talked about. You'll be in the news, such a hero. Heroes are no longer the police, the firemen, or people that serve in the armies and, and so forth. What's happening to our nation? It has a pride parade, right? And folks, when we become unblushable, that's a nation on its last legs. So Habakkuk is looking around and says, how long I'm going to pray? You won't hear so heaven's silence, there's earth's sin. What's happening, God? 
And then he says in verse 4, Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. And the law is powerless. Do you see that? Why is the law powerless? The law is paralyzed by corruption of their leaders. And to be honest with you, as I looked at which the world we live today, I asked the same question. Apparently, the law become paralyzed. Our society has set God's law aside. And we, what do we do? We define now our own sins, right? Instead of agreeing with God, what the Bible says about sin, we call it a sickness. It's no longer sin. A thief can't help it. He's just born that way. Kleptomaniac. He just has to overblame the society. Sins that would cause our forefathers to roll over in their graves are just being tolerated in the name of personal and civil rights. All while it seems God is just sitting by, allowing our nation full throttle to go into destruction mode. And the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, we don't deal with it anymore. Therefore, the heart of sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You see, we have more judges today than laws on our books than we ever did. But yet we have more crime, more filth than we ever had. Law is powerless. There's no teeth in it. We often want to blame God for the condition of our land and saying, where are you? But could it be that God is simply allowing our nation to have what she has chosen? Apparently, our nation doesn't want God to be part of the judicial system, okay? school system, economic system. So can we rightly fully blame or question God for allowing us to reap what we have sown? And same holds for the churches. What have we become? We exalt our own agenda instead of embracing God's agenda. So there is the silence of heaven. There's earth's sin. And the third thing, his problem was hell's success. It seems to be the ones that are, are successful are the ones that are living high and wide and handsome. Look in verses 5 through 6. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. So God's saying, first of all, you say I'm not working where I'm at? I'm doing things, but even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And then in verse 6, he says, For indeed, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter, hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. So instead of answering why and all those things, God says, hey, I'm also, uh, you see all those bad stuff happening? I'm also raising up the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, and they're going to walk through the earth, and they're going to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. God speaks in strange ways, doesn't he? He doesn't give Habakkuk really an explanation at all. He says, the truth of the matter, God doesn't owe us explanations, but he says, Habakkuk, I'm doing something. It wouldn't be any good to explain it to you. But you wonder why I'm not doing something? Let me tell you, I'm doing something. I'm raising the Babylonians. Babylonians. These are the evil people. Basically saying, you think it's bad now? It's going to get worse. 
It's going to get worse. I'm raising up a bitter, hasty nation. They're going to come upon my people. In other words, God is going to use the wicked Babylonians to do what? Bring judgment on Israel for their sins. I'm going to raise up Babylonians. They're going to be successful. And do you know who the Babylonians were? This is how Jeremiah describes him in chapter 51, 20. You are my battle axe, the weapons of war for which you I will break the nations in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. That's who Babylonians were in God's hands. God says, I'm the one who's doing it. I'm the one who's doing it. I'm going to raise them up because, you see, I try to be good to you, try to show you love, try to serve you mercy. I called you with loving kindness, but you would not answer. And they're going to come in. They're going to invade your land. And they're going to capture the people that don't belong to them. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, folks, I believe the church is in Babylonian captivity. Chaldeans were wicked sinners. They were idolaters. They, they, they didn't know the true and living God. It certainly doesn't excuse their sins, but it explains their conduct, right? But the Jews claimed to know God, and yet they were singing, sinning against the very law they claimed to believe. Which is worse? The sins of Judah were far worse than the sins of Chaldeans because Judah knew the way but refused to obey the way. And as a result, God had no choice but to punish his people. And look at 1 Peter 4.17. You think God is judging America and all that stuff? Well, where does judgment begin? For the time has come for the judgment to begin where? At the house of God. And it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel. So it starts with us. Churches today have become entertainment centers. Sermons are replaced with motivational speeches. Truth has been silenced. Remember we read in Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has fallen in the streets. Inequity cannot get in. It used to be where we had pastors that stay in the pulpit and say the Bible says... Then slowly it said, you know, the church says, and now it's, you know, well, it seems to me, and kind of scratched their heads. God has warned his people over and over. They refused to listen. Prophet after prophet had declared the word to them only to be rejected. And God sometimes sends natural disasters to us to awaken us, and yet it doesn't do us any good. And you see, instead of repenting and returning to God, the people resisted and rebelled against God. So God had no choice but to judge them. And God will use an evil nation to still accomplish his purposes. God can use wickedness to bring the purposes of his righteousness. It's not that God can work with wickedness, but he can work through wickedness. I believe that churches in America have been taken captive by the world, the flesh, and the devil, folks. And, and Christianity in general has been taken captive. And we say, God, why is all this happening all around us? We look there, we look there, but we fail to look here. And in the pulpit, don't fail to look past the pulpit. 
We need to understand God does this to sober us up, to bring us back to him. And Americans really, you know, we can't stand the blessings of God. We don't know how to deal with them. We've been cursed with blessings. This was known as a Christian nation. God's just continuing to bless us, bless us, and we think it's just an everyday occurrence. Well, guess what God's going to do? He's going to bless us with cursings. God is going to raise up the Babylonians against us, the world, the flesh, the devil. And that brings Habakkuk a great problem. Look at Habakkuk, verses 12, 13. He says, are you not from the everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you had appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. Why do you hold your tongue? Habakkuk is saying, God, you got it confused. you got it all mixed up. You're blessing the wrong people. You're, you're judging the wrong people. I mean, it's the Babylonians. You see, Habakkuk thought that God grades people on the curve, right? And that's what a lot of Christians think. Hey, look, we're not, we're, we are bad, yes, we're sinners. But we're not as bad as those other people over there. Therefore, God is on our side. Yeah, we're Republicans, we're bad. But we're not as bad as those Democrats over there. Therefore, God's got to be on our side, right? Wrong. In today's term, we're saying, hey, God, how can you let the wicked people clearly, without blushing against you, they're openly saying all these wicked things against you, going against your word, how can you have them power? There's a perplexing problem that he has. Your eyes are pure. They can't look at evil. And how can you judge us using the worst sinners? They're worse than ours, but you're going to judge us? But you see, when it comes to sin, God does not show partiality. In Acts 10, 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. There's no partiality with God. He doesn't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Christian, or if you're not living the lifestyle of his word. You're his enemy. And folks, and that's what we miss. And the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. I believe we're reaping what churches have sown in this country for the last 20 years. There's a law of sowing and reaping. It can never be replaced. It's, not, it's irreversible. Sin will always be judged. And it's not a matter if it's a pastor, preacher, prophet, or people. God will make sure that sin has its payday. Do you know that? There's consequences of sin. Even if he has to use wicked, vile, evil means to judge something that is also wicked and vile and mean to accomplish his plan. That's exactly where we are. Heaven is silent, earth sinful, hell is having a success, and everything just seems to be marching on and marching on. People possess what's not theirs. And folks, America does not belong to humanists. America does not belong to baby killers. It was founded for the people of God, and they have 
invaded the land. There's Babylon captivity. And we cried and prayed, why don't you do something? Heaven doesn't answer. So that's pretty much sums up the first chapter. Chapter 2 is the proper perspective. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampant and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. Now, Habakkuk realizes he's been doing too much talking and not enough listening. And I think many times we do the same thing. Come to God in prayer and say, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. And Habakkuk had a place where he could get alone with God, had some little prayer tower. He got up in that prayer tower and says, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to start listening. And I suggest to you that every child of God needs to do in these desperate days is get quiet, get centered on God, listen to what he has to say. Do you have a quiet time, place, where you get alone with God? Where do you spend time where you're not telling God anything, not asking for what you need, but just listening? You'll get a proper perspective. So when Habakkuk did that, the Lord started speaking to him. He said in verse 2, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. God's saying, Habakkuk, now that you quit shouting at me, now that you begin to listen, let me tell you something. Go get a pen. Write this down. I want you to write a book. And so people can mispronounce the name of the book. We'll name it after you. Now, we're going to write it down for times to come. There'll be some folks there down there in Vesterville, Ohio. They're going to need to read this book. And folks, now we have what God told them in black and white, book of Habakkuk. Now, sometimes people misinterpret, say, write it big in letters so, you know, when you run past it, you can, you can read it. That's not what it means. It means don't run until you read it. We have a problem today. Many times we have people who are running without reading. They don't know what they're talking about. They've never gotten into the Word of God. And you know, listen, in Romans 10, 15, it says this, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. We have people running around today. They don't have the message. They don't have the message. We have a generation today that's moved more by a personal, emotional experience. How was your worship experience? Well, I didn't know church was supposed to be like Disneyland. They're looking for something emotional. But God says, write it down. In verse 3, for the vision is yet for you an appointed time. And I think, folks, it's for our time. But at the end... And I believe we're living at the end as well. It shall speak and not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because surely it will come. It will not tarry. He says, I'm going to give you a word. So the first thing he shows them is the reliability of the Scripture. See, God cannot lie. He's given them some facts. This is what's going to happen. Write this down. God's word is true. And then the second thought, thing that he, I see here that he saw was the resources of the saint. So he tells him, write this down. 
I'm going to give you some words that you need to write down. You can rely on them. And the resource is in verse 4. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him. So he's talking about the sinner. That's the wicked man, rotten, full of pride. His soul is leaning. However, it's not upright, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. So we have the reliability of the scriptures, and here's the resources of the saint. What's the resource? Faith. Faith. What you're going to do is put your faith in God's facts, and that's the way you're going to live in this day and age. Put your faith in God's facts in his word. Because faith is the quality that keeps us going in these dark days. Faith looks beyond the physical to the spiritual. Faith looks beyond the present to the future. It's beyond temporary, which we see all around us, to the eternal. And faith can't fail, folks. If you have faith, it won't fail. And sin can't win. And faith is the only thing that is going to change America today. It's faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, we know of Moses uh, said, for the faith, faith is not the substance of things hoped for, but evidence of things not seen. See, again, it seems beyond the spiritual. It's physical to the spiritual, beyond the present, beyond the temporary. Paul writes to 2 Corinthians in 14, says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen eternal. Faith does not judge by the appearance of of the hour. Everything looks good. Oh, economy's bad. What are we doing? What's happening? You're judging things by the hour. You're not seeing the whole picture. Moses saw it was just an appearance. And Hebrews 11:27 says by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Folks, he he was raised in the Pharaoh's house. He had good economy. He he, he was set for life. But yet he saw that it was just temporary, even the good things. And he forsook it because traded in for the invisible. And faith is the only message that will see us through. And Apostle Paul quotes the man Habakkuk when he writes the letter to Romans. And he quotes him. And let me show you the context of the quotes here. First, uh, God speaks of the people that were living in Rome that time. And this is what he says about them in Romans 1, 24, 32. These are the Romans that are living there at the time. Therefore, God has also gave them up to the uncleanliness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men living in natural use of woman burned their lust for one another, and men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to the base mind to do the things which were not fitting. Being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, 
undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiven, unmerciful, who know in the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserved of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. That's how a whole in our own entertainment industry right there. Every issue being argued today is addressed in these verses. But before he gave these verses, he gave them a remedy. In verses uh, Romans 1, 15 through 17, so such as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Who's in Rome? All those people that we just talked about. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in the righteousness of God it is revealed from faith to faith that is written, and he quotes Habakkuk here, the just shall live by faith, as written. So this evil, evil situation, and also, what, what's Paul doing? He's going to live by faith. I'm going to keep doing, preaching the gospel, no matter who's in power, what's going on. My job is to preach the gospel. I'm going to Rome. And there's only one thing that will undermine the whole Roman Empire, the gospel. And the gospel, folks, only faith will enable you to endure and gospel applied in faith, gospel that we have applied in faith is the only thing that can change things. If we want a better land, we need to have better lives. And the only thing that can make our lives better is the gospel. Government can't make you better. Government can't make you better. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God is saying, I'm sorry, Habakkuk is saying, God, won't you do something? Now, we know we have the whole scripture here. God is saying, yeah, I am doing something. That now you come up here and sit quiet, I want you to see something. Reliability of the scriptures. Number two, just live by faith. And number three, retribution of the sinner. Do you think God has gone soft on sin? You think God is finally getting to that age where he's old? can't move around. You think God does not know what's happening in, in our country and others? All this sin, health success, and God's going soft, right? And he says this in Habakkuk 2, verses 5 and 6. Indeed, because he turned dressers by wine, he's a proud man. He does not stay at home because he enlarges his desires as hell. So he's talking about the sinner here. He's a proud man. He does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell. And he's like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all this people. So this is what uh, Babylon was doing, right? They're just going full throttle, destroying nations, gathering everything. He's talking about the Babylonians. They can't be satisfied. They want more and more and more. And folks, if I had more time, I would share with you how their kings viewed themselves and who they gave praise to. Uh, for, their, for their success. And he says, Will not take these up a proverb against them and taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? God is saying, Woe. Well, Babylonians were increasing what is not theirs. God says, I understand what the sinner's like. Don't think for a moment that I'm soft on sin. I know what I'm doing. He mentions here in this chapter, Woe five times over and over talks about material corruption in Habakkuk 
chapter 2, verse 5. And Americans, we have, you know, we say, in God we trust, but on our money we put me first. And the reason we can't get anybody to stop killing babies, innocent babies in America, is because there's a lot more people interested in the pocketbooks. Abortion is a great business, folks. And that's what people say. If I have more money in my pocket, why, why does it matter what's happening in the world? It doesn't bother me any. Let them do the thing. And I'm not going to read it all because I'm running out of time, but he talks about the moral corruption in verses 15 through 17. You know, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, passing him a bottle even to make him drunk. So why? So you can see his nakedness. All these drugs and so forth. All this is happening. He repeats it in Habakkuk 2.15. And then also in verses 18 through 19, he talks about the spiritual corruption. He says, what, is, what profit is the image that its maker should have? A molded image, teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in to make mute idols. Woe to him who says, would awake, to silent stone arise, he shall teach. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, yet in there there's no breath at all. So he talks about people are worshiping idols and different things and Mother Earth versus the Father God, and we have that today. You know, I'm not against protecting animals, but, you know, you kill one of those snails, you can go to jail, but you offend God. Everything's all right. It seems that we love creature more than we love the creator. And then sees the perplexing problem. He got the proper perspective. God is doing something. He doesn't understand why. Raising the Babylonians. And I want you to see the reign of our Savior. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord, as the waters covered the sea. Do you believe that? I hope you do. In Matthew 6.10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's in heaven. If we truly mean it and pray it, why are we so worried about it? And folks, last Sunday I told you, I read the, the Bible, and we win, right? We win, so why are we so discouraged by winning? But... We will lose the battle here, but we will win the war. You will. They hated me. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. But, folks, God is going to put up his son on the holy hill of Zion. And we say, God, where are you? You're not paying attention to what's happening out here? He tells Habakkuk this in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So Habakkuk saying, God, where are you? We're saying, God, where are you? God's saying, I'm in my holy temple. What's going on? Why are you panicking? There's no panic. There's no Holy Trinity meeting in emergency session. I know exactly what I'm doing, precisely what I'm doing. And we need to understand that. There's the reliability of the scriptures. There's a resource for the saints, which is our faith, and retribution for the sinner. Listen, God is saying, I'm in control. You better remember that, no matter what's happening. God doesn't need your help. Lighten his own fires. 
You see, God raised up the Babylonian Chaldeans, an evil empire, an evil government, to accomplish his purposes to correct Israel. So Israel is going to get a whipping. But you know what? What Habakkuk didn't know? Again, we know this because we have the scriptures. Jeremiah 51, 24. Look what's going to happen to Babylon. And I will repay Babylon and all its inhabitants of Chaldea for the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Wait a minute. You've raised them up? And now you're going to repay them for what you allowed them to do? In verse 35, he goes to say, let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. Inhibitant of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say. In verse 37, Babylon shall become a heap, dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and hissing without inhibitant. You see, Babylon was a great empire. One of the you know, old wonders of the world. It was powerful, it was beautiful. But then in verse 58 says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire and people will labor in vain and the nations because of the fire and they shall be weary. Remember we said God was using them as an axe, as a weapons of war. And then in verse 23 says, how the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid the snare for you. See, the moral of the story, folks, I don't know I'm running out of time. Everybody going to get a whipping. Everybody going to get a whipping. Church is going to get punished. God's not going to come back to a dirty church. We are his bride. When he comes back, he's looking for a clean bride. And when God returns, what do he say? Well, I'm going to find Grace Fellowship or Baptist or Catholics or whatever. He says, when I return, will I find faith on earth? Faith. Well, what's your resource? What kind of faith are we having? We say we have faith, but yet do we demonstrate it in our lives? And you think God appointed leaders, God's going to let the wickedness of our local, national leaders and, or even in churches, the pastors, the preach false gospel and so forth. You think God is just going to let them slide by? He has no power to do something? Oh, no. Jeremiah 16, 17 says this, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. God's going to take care of it. In the end, we win. We may lose some battles here. So when he starts to understand this a little bit, Habakkuk starts praising God. And in verses 17, 18, he says, okay, economy's bad, all these crazy things going on. And look at verses 17, 18. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the wines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall. So economically... It's a disaster. There's no food, no nothing. People standing in lines, waiting to get some milk. All this craziness going on. In verse he says, 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of what? My salvation. That's what you need to make it to the other side. 
Are you saved? Folks, remember God's greatness and rejoice in God's goodness. Things may not be good around us, but God is good all the time, right? Folks, if you're saved, if you know the Lord, it doesn't matter if gasoline goes up to $5 a gallon. It doesn't matter if Wall Street crashes, we lose all our savings. It doesn't matter if they're going to come take your house away. The Bible says you can rejoice in the Lord your God of your salvation and rely on God's grace. And he ends in verse 19, which is interesting to me. God didn't reveal all the whys to Habakkuk, but he revealed again the who. He says, the Lord God is my strength. That's who you need. You don't need to know exactly what's going on. You need God. He will make my feet like a deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels. And then this last sentence, which is interesting. He says, to the chief musician with my string instruments. He says, hey, do some praise. We got all this crazy stuff going on. Hell's success, earth sin. But we're going to praise God and make sure your chief musician knows with string instruments. So he begins asking, why, why, Lord? And he paid attention. He didn't really answer why. Showed him the who. I am your strength. I will make you like the footed gazelle on the mountains. You'll climb the high hills. And Habakkuk wrote this book for appointed times. And I believe it's for us today. So no matter what's going on, we as Grace Fellowship, we're going to keep singing. We're going to keep praising Keep on believing and keep on loving because our God reigns. They can come, you know, take our church away. It's all right. We can still praise God. We can still worship God. No matter what happens. You know, again, I feel sometimes we overpromise. Come to God and all honey and no bees. Read the lives about the saints. Isaiah, Jeremiah. All these brave saints eventually got killed. Are we ready to be persecuted? If you're not, I don't know what the future holds, and I don't believe to be a prophet, but time is coming. You need to be ready. Stop whining around what's happening. Read the book, and you'll find comfort, because all these things need to happen in order for God to come back doesn't mean that we agree with these things or approve of these things. We go, vote biblical values, but if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to be, praise God, because ultimately, he is in control. And when something happens that I don't like or my opinion is different compared to God, I change my opinion. And what does the Bible tell us about our leaders? What are we to do? Pray for them. Pray for them. It's your obligation. It's instruction. Do I approve of all their policies, procedures, or whatever? No. But I know God's in control, and God's telling me to pray for them. So in these dark days, and I know we kind of went off track for these two sermon series, thanks to Mike Kelly, know that God is in control. Folks, relax. We don't need to be a church that's all Republican, all Democrat, 
We need to be a God's church. And the devil doesn't care which side he wrecks you on, the Democratic left or the Republican right, as long as you get off God's way. God's in the control. We pray, and trust me, he doesn't need your help. We need his help. Don't light your own fires. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the message you've given us and the comfort that sometimes there's ordained darkness in our lives. And Father, we need to look at ourselves first before we start pointing fingers anywhere else. If we claim to be Christians and know your ways and know your word, that we're living by it. Maybe it's because of us things are the way they are. Because we're not being obedient to your word. Father, help us as a church move forward and be obedient and be a light in this neighborhood. And it's a blessing to know that you blessed this church and kept this church for 54 years and help us continue for however many years you placed us to be here. But one thing I ask is that we be obedient to your word no matter what. And as we leave this place today, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen. Amen. Don't forget your book.